Good morning, gentlemen. Welcome to Amen Bible Study. Every Thursday morning, 6.15, get your bananas and your coffee, plenty of it. You'll need it. Stay awake during Bible study. <clears throat> and welcome to Romans chapter 16. Uh, we have spent this year looking at these 16 wonderful chapters. And you can see from last week that even chapter 16, when he's saying goodbye, is full of wonderful teaching about the nature of Christ's church. And we come to the close of his letter and we see there are some very important warnings here that we should always apply to every part of the Bible that we learn. Uh, in case you're wondering about next year, we'll start up in September. We're going to look at some the epistles that were written by the people who are probably the closest to Jesus of anybody in the Bible. His two brothers, James and Jude, and then his closest disciple, John. So we're going to look at what's known as the general epistles, or we call them Catholic epistles. That means they're not addressed to one particular church, but for the whole Catholic universal church. Uh, and so these general epistles of uh, James, and we'll look at 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, and Jude. So uh, plan to join us in the fall. This summer there will also be Amen. I guess you'll be hearing more about that. But uh, we have a lot to look forward to. But today and next Thursday we're going to finish up Romans, which we've raced through in one year. I believe the first time that we studied Romans, we took three years to do it, 20 years ago. But we've really sped it up. <coughs> so I hope that you've gotten the essence of it. What a wonderful letter. We've seen that Paul has never been to Rome, but he is writing because he's going to be passing through there finally, in his opinion, on his way to Spain. We've seen that he doesn't quite get there the way he thought he was going to get there. He gets there on a prison ship, or as a prisoner on a ship, that shipwrecks, and he ends up walking in chains to Rome. Not exactly the way he planned to get there, and we don't know whether he got on to Spain or not. Uh, I, I've expressed my doubts that he made it. I, I hope that he made it to Spain, but I kind of doubt it. It seems to me we would have heard about it from some other sources if he had. But nonetheless, he, he rang to these Romans because he plans to come through there and seek their support on his missions trip. So in preparation for coming to collect some resources to continue the mission onto Spain, into Europe, he uh, shares with them his gospel. He says to them, this is what I'm going to be telling the world. It's the same thing that you need. And we get this exquisite exposition <coughs> of the gospel of Christ in Romans 1 through 11, the doctrinal exposition. In the midst of that exposition, he showed us how it affects our social relationships, particularly with racial, ethnic, religious background justice, how there is to be diversity in the church because God breaks down all those barriers, makes us brothers. And uh, he showed how Jew and Gentile in chapters 9 through 11 are to be getting along. We get to Romans 12, and he says there are ethical implications of this gospel. You can't believe this glorious gospel and just simply embrace the doctrines of the gospel without having it transform your conduct, your attitudes, the way that you think. And so we're transformed by the renewal of our minds, he said. And the first thing that affects is our love. 
And I don't know about you, but having become a Christian as an adult, I was very aware of my loves being transformed. But he says this is the first thing that happens to you. And you love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then because of that, you love your neighbors yourself. And he showed us several ways in which we're to love our neighbor. And uh, that includes Jew and Gentile, learning how to love, tolerate each other, support each other, and encourage each other in the Lord. And then we got to the end of 15. Uh, he showed us his mission uh, intentions. And then 16, he begins his farewell to them in this letter. Now we come to a portion today it's extremely important. We're slowing down and only looking at uh, about seven verses because we want to look at them carefully because what the apostle is going to say is when you've received something this precious as the gospel and the doctrines that are in Romans, you have to protect these things. And you say, why do I have to do that? Well, let me just tell you, uh, maybe give you a little illustration of what your situation is. You're a five-year-old in a playground you're surrounded by 10-year-olds, okay? And your daddy, on his way to the office, stops by the playground and comes or walks over to you and hands you a brand-new football. I mean, you've never had a fully leather football like this thing. And then he walks off, gets in his car, and drives on to the office and leaves you there surrounded by 10-year-olds. Now, what's going to happen to your football? We all know what's going to happen to your football. You're not going to be playing with that football. A whole bunch of 10-year-olds are going to be playing with your football all afternoon. And they're going to take it from you. Well, you've got something far more precious than a football. You've been given this glorious deposit of the gospel. And you're surrounded by bullies. You are. And you just can't expect to hang on to what you got unless you're going to enter into a fight. There's a fight to be fought. And you're going to have to defend what you've got. Uh, now, this, this is a theme that runs throughout the Scriptures. Leave your finger there in Romans 16 before we even read the text. Let's go back and look for a moment at, at uh, Matthew chapter 7. Here in the Sermon on the Mount, you have this wonderful sermon that Jesus gives. It's just beyond belief how glorious it is. You know, in Matthew 5, he, we studied this sermon some years ago. Matthew chapter 5, that first chapter of the Sermon on the Mount, he tell, shows us what Christian character is like. He gives us the Beatitudes, and then he shows us how the Christian relates to the law. You get in chapter 6, he talks about Christian piety, how we pray, how we fast. And then he talks about how we're not to worry because we trust God, just the one who clothes the grass of the field and, and feeds the ravens. Surely he'll take care of us in, in Matthew chapter 6. He gets to chapter 7, and he talks about how we're not to judge or condemn other people so that we will not be condemned, and we take the beam out of our own eyes so that we can take the speck out of somebody else's eyes. These marvelous teachings. And then what does he tell you in Matthew chapter 7, verse 15? Look at that with me on page 1834. He says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. So he says, There are going to be people who come to you who put on clergy garbs who come to you looking very shepherdly who profess to want to help you and take care of your soul but inwardly they're wolves and they've just covered themselves with sheep's clothing so they can get close to you and take your football away and he said Jesus is warning he knows this is going to happen 
Uh, turn on over to Acts chapter 20. Uh, this is Paul's farewell to the Ephesian elders. Now, this is actually occurring after he's written the letter to Romans. He's left Corinth where he's written, you know, he wrote the Romans from Corinth. He's now left, left Corinth and he's on his way to Jerusalem. And he's, he's stopping off along the shore to say goodbye to his beloved Ephesian elders. And it's a very tearful parting and so on. And he gives a marvelous speech here. But look with me at verse, we'll back up to verse uh, 20 and get some of the context. Um, he says, I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now behold, I'm going to Jerusalem constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. So he's talked now about himself and why he is not going to be uh, forbidden from pursuing his ministry out of fear of danger. He's saying, I don't count my life worth anything to me compared to my finishing my ministry. Now look at verse 25. And now, behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all of you. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. Okay, stop there for a minute. That's a wonderful sentence, especially those of you who are in shepherding roles in Christ's church. Look at that. Look at that instruction. Give special careful attention to yourself and to the souls of others. Because Jesus has purchased this church with his own blood, so you should certainly care for it. And then look at verse 29. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert. Remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. <clears throat> there you have it again. Paul's warning them. You don't receive something so precious in the playground of this world without 10-year-old bullies coming in trying to take it away from you. And he says, I know they're going to do this. And he said, remember what I did. I, I not only went on offense, but I went on defense. And I went from house to house on offense and on defense, day after day, with tears, the whole three years I was among you. Why did I do that? Because every time I preach, someone, namely the devil and his agents, are trying to take away what I preached. And that's the way it is with you. Every time you're teaching in Sunday school, you think you can just gather people in Sunday school once a week for 30 minutes, and that's going to transform their lives. You sow seeds in Sunday school, and then you, you fertilize and you... You bring sunshine and rain and you cultivate that garden. You disciple people because they're going to have many challenges, people trying to take away their leather football. So 
uh, we're engaged in full-fledged battle. Now, look, uh, lastly, before we look at our text, look at Philippians, and this is uh, page uh, 2280. And when Paul, and you know how much he loved the Philippian church, the Macedonian church, he says in verse 7, it is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace. This is chapter 1, verse 7. Both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. So he says to them, you're my partners not only while I'm in prison, but you're my partners in defending and confirming the gospel. And then look at verse 15. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I'm put here for the defense of the gospel. So he uses the word defense there twice. Why? I think the reason was because the Philippians were particularly timid. And you'll see that in the end of chapter 1, he also encourages them to stand together as one man to contend for the gospel. Contend for the gospel. So we share the gospel, we teach the gospel, we proclaim the gospel, but we also contend for it, we defend it, we confirm it. Uh, you, have to, you have to guard what you have. And when Paul goes off the scene in 2 Timothy, uh, his last letter to his protege, he tells him to guard the good deposit of the gospel that's been given to him. So you're engaged in a hand-to-hand combat when you're engaged in gospel belief. Now let's look at our text in Romans 16, verses 17 through 23. And you'll see then it makes perfect sense that after Paul has shared this glorious deposit of the gospel, he's going to say, don't take this for granted. I just handed you a leather football. You're a five-year-old and surrounded by 10-year-old bullies. What are you going to do? Okay? You're going to go on defense. You're going to guard. You're going to contend. You're going to fight. So let's look at it. Verse 17. I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you've been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. For your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you, but I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Timothy, my fellow worker, greets you. So do Lucius and Jason and Sosipater, my kinsmen. I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord. Gaius, who is host to me and to the whole church, greets you. Erastus, the city treasurer, and our brother Quartus, greet you. Okay, let's take a look at this. <clears throat> First of all, notice here in verses 17, 18, and 19 that Paul is saying you've got to oppose schismatics. The word schism or schism just means a division. And there are people that will seek to divide you. The very word heresy means to separate or to, uh, to divide. So heresies, un, uh, uh, unorthodox teachings have the fundamental dynamic of dividing up the body of Christ. We're united around the truth, the truth of the gospel. 
And so when people come who are giving false teachings, they are splintering the church. And you'll see that's what breaks the heart of God, if you will. And he's saying, watch out for these schismatics, these people who cause divisions. Now, I want to ask the question here, for what did the first century Christians have to watch out? Well, first of all, those who cause divisions. What kind of divisions? Well, let's look at some examples. First of all, unnecessary conflict among the brethren. There are people who just like to cause conflict, cause trouble. Just get something going, some row. It's almost like a purpose in life. They just enjoy it. And Paul, in his letter to Titus, later on, he puts it this way in Titus 3.10. He says, as for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. So he says, you try to help a person like that once, you help him twice. But when he unrepentantly continues to sow seeds of division, you have nothing to do with him. In other words, I think you excommunicate. You say, boy, that sure is pretty serious business. Yeah, it is serious business. And the reason is the unity of the church is serious business. So... What wolves do is they try to come in and divide up and they typically will use false doctrine, but they may use other uh, techniques. And so we must be on the watch. If you're a leader in a Sunday school class or in a church or even in some Christian organization, some ministry, you have to watch out for division and intervene on it or unresolved conflict. And you can see in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 how some of the brothers had some business conflicts and Paul excoriates them because they take it to civil court. And he says, can't you all resolve this among yourselves? What's wrong with you? You are folks who are supposed to ultimately judge angels. That's where you're headed. And you can't judge material uh, issues here on this planet? What's wrong with you? Don't you know who you are? So that's the reason that in all of our churches, all of our fellowships, we should have methodologies for helping the brothers and sisters resolve their conflicts. And there are all kinds of conflicts that can occur. Marital conflicts, business conflicts, all of those. We must be a people who are always bringing about unity in the body of Christ. And we intervene on those who will not resolve their conflicts. They are causing division in the church. Thirdly, you have the issue of favoritism. And James, we'll, we'll study this next fall, but James says in James Chapter 2, how can you show favoritism to the rich? Aren't you, don't you know it's the rich people who are taking advantage of you? When's the last time the poor person defrauded you? you know? It's the wealthy people who are, who are squeezing you. And he says, besides that, the royal law of love demands that we treat each other the way we've been treated, graciously. So if you're going to show favoritism, show it toward the poor. But even in the, in the courts of law, you're not even supposed to show favoritism toward, toward the poor in the courts of law. There's got to be equality. So uh, wealth can certainly cause divisions in the church. The church is to be diverse ethnically. It's also to be diverse socioeconomically, in which case we have to be very sensitive to these matters, and we don't just make elders out of all the wealthy people. I remember when I was a, a, a new young salesman for Bethlehem Steel Corporation. I lived in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania for a while, and I wasn't a believer, but I would go to church maybe once a year. I mean, you know, I wanted to kind of check in on things, see how it was going. <laughs> you know, feeling sorry for you all who spent all your time, you know, just going to church. And I got to go out there and just do all the kinds of things. 
So I go to church every once in a while, and I remember looking in the back of the bulletin of the First Presbyterian Church in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, and I looked at the list of elders. And you know, doggone it, I think I recognized every one of them. They were all managers and executives at Bethlehem Steel Corporation. And you know, I wasn't even a Christian, but it just crossed my mind. That's kind of odd, you know, the sort of the corporate structure, you just put it right over there in the church. And I tell you, I, maybe, maybe all those men were very godly, competent men who should have been elders. But it look, I'll tell you what it looked like to me. It looked like to me that we were just showing favoritism. I wasn't a member of the church, but it looked like they were showing favoritism. Just taking people who are community leaders and just make them church leaders. Paul says, knock it off. Uh, that's, that causes division in the church. False divisions. When you take worldly categories and you use those to decide who your spiritual leaders are. He said there are other standards, and of course he gave those standards in uh, 1 Timothy and in Titus especially. So we don't show favoritism. F fourthly, we got to watch out for party spirit. Those who cause divisions through party spirit. What's that? Well, it's people who want to follow this individual or that individual or, or that individual. And, uh, you know, you've got, well, I'm... I follow Beth Moore, they, the women say. I follow Kay Arthur. You know, I remember when Kay Arthur was a little younger. She's still teaching, but she's got to be in her 80s. And uh, when Kay was a little younger, you could always tell who were the students of Kay Arthur were. They had the same hairdo that she had. <laughs> I'm serious. I mean, they just clone, she just clones them, you know? And that's party spirit. Come on now, grow up. Uh, but, you know... I, in my years, I've seen that in the Reformed community, you know, we have our special teachers. When I was growing up, you know, uh, as a new Christian, R.C. Sproul was really coming out, you know, with Reformed theology, and we were excited about that. And then it was Tim Keller, and, and I think the next generation's really fired up about Matt Chandler, and, and I'm fired up about all three of those and many, many or, more who are excellent teachers. But woe be to the person who looks down on somebody else because they have some other person that they prefer to follow. And, you know, I'm a... Kellerite, or I'm a Sprolite, or whatever it is. You know, come on now, that's party spirit. We have to watch out for that. Or, you know, it can happen when a pastor retires. Uh, some of you from Bellevue Baptist will remember a few years ago, there's some people who just couldn't, didn't seem to be able to get along with, without Adrian. And the Lord said, okay, I'll take him. <laughs> and the Lord took him. And some of the Adrianites, and you remember, there was an article in the paper when Adrian retired. It was, he, he had a, this wonderful quote. Uh, and someone said, what about, that?" He, he was asked, what about all those people who just want Adrian Rogers? And he said, well, they'll be just as well not in the church at all. You know, he just, uh, and so basically what I've, I've said is if there's anybody here who thinks Amen Bible Study is fundamentally all about Sandy Wilson, you're my work. You're my project. I'll, I'm going to be on your doorstep next year. Uh, you know, you're my job. Because if we're all well-trained, then you honor your teacher by being taught by anyone who's teaching the Bible well. That's exactly what we're trying to teach each other to do. So uh, if Adrian had lived long enough, I don't think Bellevue would have had their problems that they had when Steve Gaines first got here. He would have been on the doorstep. I know he would have. Uh, with his, people who are claiming to be his followers, no, sir, they were dividing the church. So watch out for yourself with party spirit, no matter what the occasion. Now, look... Uh, fifthly, you can see sometimes they're just unnecessary arguments. You know, you can get, uh, sometimes you'll be in a Sunday school class or a small group, and there are just some people just like to argue about theology. And it's not really producing anything that you can see uh, is leaning toward godliness or holiness or a changed life. It's just 
the desire to argue about details. And Paul says to Timothy, Timothy, that's not for the man of God. He doesn't just enter into argumentation for argumentation's sake. He's always gentle. He's able to teach, but he does so wisely and gently. And then uh, lastly, let's mention jealousy. Uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, uh, we'll be, we can be jealous over each other's spiritual gifts. And if you happen to have a spiritual gift, if you're in a charismatic church and you can really interpret prophecies, man, you're hot. Uh, you know, if you can speak in tongues faster than anybody else, you got it, man. Everybody looks, looks up to you, how do I do that, you know? And so you look down on everybody else who doesn't quite have the gift of tongues yet the way you've got it. And Paul says, seek the higher gifts. Love. <laughs> seek love. And in Presbyterian circles, it's, oh, man, he can teach. Oh, he, he's, a, he's a great teacher. And so you get elevated, you know, through being a teacher, you know, in, in some circles. Well, uh, Paul is saying, these are all sources of division if you're not really, really careful. And if you play into that, you are the one who is causing division. He says, I appeal to your brothers, watch out for those who cause division. And I want to say to you brothers who, who lead in so many different churches and ministry organizations, watch out for those who cause division. In the area where you have influence, where you're leading, just remember that one of the key functions of your leadership is to intervene in areas where division is taking place. Whatever your area, those of you who are elders at second and you have responsibility in a Sunday school class, one thing you're always looking for is how do I intervene on someone who's either intentionally or unintentionally causing division? God hates that. He loves His church and He doesn't like to see it splintered up. So we have to be men, if we're well-trained in the Scriptures, who are always on the lookout, knowing it's going to happen. It's going to happen. It always does. You've got a leather football with bullies around you. Then Paul goes on to say, not only those who cause division, but those who create obstacles contrary to the doctrine you've been taught. That is, these obstacles, these, uh, literally a scandalos, the word from which we get scandal, these, these rocks, uh, and Jesus is a scandal, isn't he? He's one who causes people to trip up. Uh, those who don't believe trip up on Jesus. He's the rock, the scandal. Well, Paul is saying there are scandals that cause believers to trip up. And those scandals are the heresies that are around us. And those people who are denying the truth of the Scriptures. And I've put here some things that in the first century, clearly, Christ and the apostles were dealing with. First of all, the deity and the incarnation of Christ. Those who deny that Jesus Christ really appeared as second person of the Trinity in the flesh. John says in 1 John 2, they went out from among us because they were never of us. They had denied the full incarnation. And those in our day who say, oh, the virgin birth, I don't know if you can believe in that. That sounds too magical. But what they're really denying is the essential deity of Jesus Christ. And that is, a, that is a formal heresy that divides up the church of Jesus Christ. You've got to watch out for that. That's deadly. Uh, secondly, let me mention the substitutionary atonement. And here you have Paul pleading for uh, this trust in the work of Jesus Christ alone, not our own performance, not our own conformity to ceremonial rituals in Galatians and Colossians and Romans as well. We see his teaching, the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ. 
there are those through the years who have tried to modify that truth, and it's divisive. There's some who say, Jesus didn't really take the wrath of God. What he did was, when he went to the cross, he just showed us how much he loves us. And he showed us that we too are to sacrifice ourselves. It was a moral influence. That's what the cross was. That empties the cross of its power. As you can see from Romans chapter 3, Paul teaches us, no, there is where Christ exhausted the wrath of God. And the wrath of God is laid aside off of us because it's put onto Him. That doctrine will be always be attacked because it's a beautiful leather football and the bullies want to take it away from us. Thirdly, Christ's bodily resurrection. And you see this in 1 Corinthians 15. You can feel Paul wrestling against those in Corinth who were teaching that the resurrection was just a spiritual idea. I remember when I was a new Christian and I was in, in the, the office at Bethlehem Steel Corporation. I was in the New England sales office, the Boston sales office. We were up in the Prudential Building. And I remember sitting in my assistant manager's office. He was an older, distinguished guy. And he was Unitarian. And we had just had Easter. And I said something about it. I forgot what I said. It was just almost a passing comment. He said, well, let me tell you what I taught my family on Easter. I said, what's that, Harry? And he said, well, he said, we're at the dining room table. And he said, I had them all just look at the chandelier. I said, look at it. And he said, I walked over to the light switch and I turned it off. And I said, now close your eyes. And I said, now what do you see? And they said, a chandelier. He said, that's it. That's the resurrection. Wow, that's profound, Harry. (laughs) So he's basically saying he's teaching his family, children and grandchildren, that it's just an illusion. It's just you think you're seeing something for whatever reason, and that's the resurrection. It's just an idea. It's like the Easter bunny. It's like Santa Claus. It's like the tooth fairy. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 that if that's the way the resurrection is, your faith is completely futile and you're lost as sin. Your salvation is gone because it rests on a bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. Why? Because his bodily resurrection shows that his bodily suffering was received as a sacrifice by God. God verifies that by raising him from the dead. Also, when he raises him from the dead, what does that show about what's going to happen to you? You're going to raise from the dead because you're in Christ. So if Christ's body is still in the grave, you're dead as a duck. So if he's alive, you're alive too. And so you will be resurrected. So the whole Christian faith collapses around the bull rot that is being taught in some liberal churches in our own community. So he says, watch out for these folks. They divide the body of Christ by destroying the doctrine of the gospel. And then certainly the necessity of faith in Christ through hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Peter stands up before this other religious body, a Jewish religious body. And he says to them, there's no other name given among men by which we must be saved but the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So he's speaking to one of the world's great religions. And he says there's only one way to be saved. Gentlemen, I suggest you stick to that. That's the gospel order. And when you deny that, you end up splintering the body of Christ. And once again, we've got many tall steeples in this town with people who wear long black gowns, just like I do at 11 o'clock service, and they're preaching this kind of rubbish, that there are many ways to be saved. And Peter 
working upon the truth of the Lord Jesus Christ, who himself said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to me, comes to the Father but by me. They are teaching that that's not true, and it's, it divides up the body of Christ. Apostolic authority. Paul had to defend his authority in 2 Corinthians, particularly in chapters, uh, chapter 11. And you find the same thing with uh, 3 John, where we're taught those who reject apostolic authority are to be rejected from the church. So watch out for that. Those who don't submit to the authority of the scriptures, that's divisive. And I know some, teach some churches that allow people to teach in Sunday school who don't believe in the infallibility of the scriptures. So what they're teaching is there's some other authority, namely their common sense, that's more important than the Bible. Watch out for that, Paul says. Watch out for those who deny the full entail of sin. And you can see that the Lord Jesus in Matthew chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount talks about how the rabbis looked at the law superficially. And then in chapter 23 of Matthew, he shows how they, they are so superficial in the way that they apply the law of God. And Jesus shows us, as well as the Apostle Paul, that we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The law pierces to the very intentions and motives of our hearts. And it's all wickedness. If we don't get that right, if we don't get the diagnosis correct, then we don't get the prescription of the cross correct. And there are some who deny the grace of God. We've already looked at that, but especially through legalism. And Paul says in Philippians chapter 3, watch out for those dogs, those vicious dogs who will eat your lunch and eat you up, uh, who want to convince you that the way to please God is through conformity to some rule book instead of trusting in his work on Calvary's cross for you. And then certainly creation. Those who deny creation. Paul had to deal with this in Acts chapter 17, you remember, when he went before the uh, Areopagus in Athens and he was proclaiming the creator. Unlike these gods that you've got who couldn't create anything, our God, the God of the universe, created everything. And he appointed places for men to live. That's the sovereignty of, of the God that we serve. And those who deny that divide the church. Biblical sexuality, you'll see this over and over again, but certainly in Revelation chapter 2, when John was writing the churches that he ministered to, he was reminding them that God is disciplining them and even judging them because they follow certain heretical doctrines that have to do with sexual immorality. This has always been the case from the day that there was any uh, redemption at all Right from the Garden of Eden, there's always been an attack upon God's standard of biblical sexuality. You should expect that. When the Israelites went into Canaan, into the Holy Land, what did the people there do? They practiced rampant sexual immorality. When Paul went to Asia and Europe and taught among the Gentiles, what was one of the number one problems, one of the big changes that would take place in men's lives when they became Christian? It was their sexual morality. And the reason is your sexual morality reflects your theology. We've discussed that before. But you should expect that if someone wants to take away the deposit of this gospel, they're going to attack one of the obvious ethical implications of the doctrines of the gospel. And even broader than that, just biblical conduct. And you see this in 1 Peter 2, where Paul, or Peter rather excoriates the false teachers of his own day who are acting as though there is no law of God and setting themselves forward as authorities. You see it with racial and socioeconomic justice. They deny that. 
And this divides the church. And we've already seen in James chapter 2 how that happens with rich and poor. And in Galatians 2, you can see how Peter himself, an apostle, showed favoritism to the Judaizer group, his Jewish friends. And he went to eat with them because they were separating themselves from the Gentiles over food laws. Paul stood up in public and opposed him. Because Peter was doing it in public, Paul opposed him in public. One apostle against the other. And the reason is it's divisive. It separates Jew from Gentile. It separates people within the church. And it's bad doctrine, but it leads to division. There are some who deny absolute truth. You can see this with Jesus when he's before Pilate. Pilate says, what is truth? Even there, the idea of truth is being questioned with, through cynical Pilate. And Jesus says, the truth is real and saves. And then the return of Christ. Uh, in 2 Peter chapter 3, once again, you can see Peter speaking against the false teachers of his day who were denying that there was a final judgment and who were denying that Jesus Christ would come back and consummate all of history. There are those who deny that. There have always been those who deny that. And when they do, it divides the body of Christ and some of the sheep are lost, those on the periphery. So you have to watch out for all of these things in the first century. What about our century? For what do 21st century Christians have to watch out? I've listed five things here I think we ought to keep our minds on. First of all, postmodern relativism. And that is, once again, there's no such thing as absolute truth. Everybody has their own truth shaped by their cultural location. What the postmodern relativist forgets is that he has his cultural location, for heaven's sakes. Where did he come up with this screwy idea? Came up with it in the 20th and 21st century in his Western egalitarian cultural context. He came up with it in a postmodern ethos. That's where he came up with it. So you say to him, oh, so we're all shaped by our cultural ethos and therefore our truth is only our truth. Well, your truth is only your truth, which is that our truth is only our truth. Are you with me? In other, words, he, in other words, he just relativized himself out of the equation, out of the discussion. So if you're saying everything is relative, well, then you're relative. So you make no sense. So I'm ignoring you. You're just a product of your own cultural, your own uh, postmodern location. So I'm not, I don't have to listen to you. I'd rather listen to the Bible. There are answers to these things. You just have to think about it. There's a book called uh, 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 The uh, Intolerance of Tolerance by D.A. Carson, Don Carson. You might want to read that at some point. Secondly, I mentioned philosophical evolution, the denying of a creator. It's a major divisive issue. It, it takes sheep out of the flock uh, because they're being taught that there is no creator and there was no uh, miraculous creation where something was called out of nothing. So they have all these theories about the Big Bang Theory and all the rest, but my question still is, where did the stuff come from for the Big Bang Theory? Who, who brought that into existence? Nobody has an answer for that. Nobody has an answer for a lot of things, a lot of scientific questions. They just have theories. Well, we've got a theory too, and we can tell you where it came from. It came from the Word of God. And when we look at the scientific realm, it seems to be perfectly consistent with a, an understanding of the biblical approach to beginnings but philosophical evolution. When I'm talking to uh, high school seniors before they go off to college, one, one of the lectures I give them is on what to be prepared for. And we talk about both these things. You have to 
have read some things on relativism, postmodernism, and know what that's all about. Otherwise, you're just going to hit an avalanche. You won't even know what hit you. Secondly, you really need to think about creation. On creation, I usually will recommend to them just a little book by Lee Strobel called Case for Creation. Uh, it's only oh, 125 pages, but it's very, very well done. And he hits the major issues that a creationist needs to be aware of. Thirdly, uh, here's an old phrase, secular humanism. Uh, and, you know, Chuck Colson has written many things along these lines to show us how secular humanism really doesn't work. Secular humanism just means, secular just means here and now. In other words, you're explaining everything by what you can see in the here and now. There's no eternity. And humanism is uh, focused on the human being as the center of all things. So you have a secular, non, uh, you know, there's only one tier. It's just what you see. There's no eternity. There's no underworld. There's no heaven. There's just secular just means this world. It's just this world and human beings are the center of the attention. So everything revolves around the human being. You can, you can read several things that Colson has written to help you out there. Fourthly, we are facing uh, the perversion of biblical origins and hermeneutics. That is, how do you interpret the Bible and where did the Bible come from? And certainly, uh, I tell high school seniors, when you're going off to college, you need to have some idea of how your Bible got put together, the Old Testament and the New Testament. You can look in the back of your study Bible, the ESV study Bible, sometime this week. Read those chapters there on the origin of the Bible and read the chapter on how to interpret the Bible. There are generally accepted principles that come from the Bible itself about how to interpret the Bible. You'll find that the divisive person will come in and question uh, without ever really wanting answers but we'll just raise cynical questions about the authority of the Bible. And then lastly is the moral relativism, which leads to pragmatism, which leads to a denial of conscience, which we've discussed here before. And we can see it especially with respect to the erosion of the sexual ethic that I've already mentioned. And here uh, on the sexual ethic, especially the issue of homosexual conduct, you might want to read a book by Kevin DeYoung, entitled, What Does the Bible Say About Homosexuality? Kevin DeYoung, What Does the Bible Say About Homosexuality? Because once again, there are people who claim to be Christians who have been brought up in a pew in a church somewhere, and there's one, there are one or two in particular, who are saying that the Bible teaches that homosexual conduct is perfectly acceptable. And if you look at how they deal with their exegesis, they just distort and pervert one text after another, Kevin DeYoung in his book just goes through the seven texts in the scriptures where it's mentioned and gives a very straightforward exegesis of it. Gentlemen, here's what Paul is saying. You've been given this amazing deposit. Would you please watch out? Watch out in your own life for what, takes, what rips it out of your hands and watch out for what rips it out of the hands of your children, your grandchildren, and the church and the community that you serve. So that's the first thing. And you can see we've made great progress studying one half of one verse in 50 minutes. Okay? Now in 10 minutes, we're going to finish this, this text. We come, secondly, 17b, he tells you what to do. He says, avoid them. Really? Avoid them? Well, the first thing you do, obviously, is you watch out for them and you interact with them. You defend the gospel. But when you see that their head is hard as flint, they don't want to be convinced, they just want to cause trouble, you avoid them. And this is something that I think we've lost in, in our own day. 
there's a sense in which we don't want to make anybody unhappy. We don't want to be unkind to anybody. And certainly, we don't want to be unkind. We evangelize anybody. But there are some people who are causing division. You have to turn your back on them. You have to cut them out. And the Western, especially American Southern gentleman, doesn't want to do that. And sometimes you really should. You must learn how to avoid. I've given you several texts there in the handout that show how the apostles teach this over and over again, that you've got to be sure that there's a discipline within your community, uh, that people are not being unrepentantly divisive. And this is one of the most important things that pastors and elders can do in their church. There's a difference between evangelizing and being sentimental, and we must be careful to know the difference. Now, thirdly, he says, not only watch out for them and avoid them, but discern them. Know what you're dealing with. You say, how do I know what I'm dealing with? Well, the way you know what you're dealing with is by reading the Bible regularly and being in healthy fellowship regularly. I'm telling you, that's what does it. Because if someone comes to you and they're out of bounds with what you've been studying and their, their motivation is different than the motivation you've been cultivating in the fellowship that you're in, you can, you can smell it just like that. You can smell it like a rat. Uh, you know the story of, of a woman who was asked how she can tell a counterfeit bill? She said, I just feel it. Well, how do you do that? She said, I've been counting the real thing for so many years. As soon as I hit one that's counterfeit, it just it feels different. I just pull it right out. And that's the way it is with counterfeit theology. You deal with the true theology so much, you can just smell a rat. It's because it's contrary to the entire system of doctrine that's taught in the Scriptures. And someone comes in with, with perverted motives, you can feel it just like that because it's contrary to the people who lay down their lives for their brothers. It's contrary and you can feel it. But he says, discern them. First of all, their motives. He says their motives are not to serve Christ, but their own carnal appetites. They're, literally, he says, their bellies. Paul says the same, things, the same thing in Philippians chapter 3. They're not serving Christ, they're serving their own bellies. So in this case, what we can see is someone who wants to draw attention to himself, he wants affirmation, he needs people to think he's cool or whatever it is, or sometimes, more crassly, this is the way he makes his living. You know, I've always wondered why it is that a liberal Protestant pastor would be a pastor. I mean, for years I would just think, why would they, why would they do The last thing in the world I'd want to do is to be a pastor if I didn't have the gospel that I was sharing with people. Who wants to, who wants to be a schmarmy pastor who doesn't have anything to say that gets people to eternal life? It, just, it seems like such a waste of time. But after years, I've, 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 after I've gotten to know some of these, uh, I've tried to, you know, I've learned, I think they enjoy a position of apparent authority. They uh, apparently enjoy having access to people's private life. They enjoy having, you know, some deeper conversations with people that are intellectual and sometimes spiritual or emotional. So they enjoy, they're kind of people helpers and they get satisfaction out of that. And if you get to know them really well, they're very aware of their career track and how much they're being paid as opposed to how much somebody else is being paid. And this always shocks me. But as I've gotten 
trying to figure out why do these people do this? Those are some of the motives, at least the ones that I can see, and that's exactly what Paul is saying. They're not here to serve Christ. Keep this clear in your head. They're here to serve their own bellies, either their own egos or their own food on the table for, for them and the ones they, they love. So their motives are wrong. Their methods, how do they do it? Smooth talk and flattery. They deceive naive hearts. That's exactly what they do. And the ones who are very successful are the ones who are really smooth, really nice. Oh, he's so nice. He's, he's got a great sense of humor. You know, when my grandmother died, he was there. Yeah, he wanted the estate, you know. Uh, but he was there. He was so nice. And you hear these kinds of comments, and the person is preaching rubbish, total rubbish. And people will love him, naive people. And so Paul is saying, don't be naive. Realize there are people like this, and you should expect them to be very nice and winsome. So he says their motives are perverted and their methods are, are smooth. And thirdly, their message. He says, I want you to know the difference between good and evil. And their message is evil. And the reason they come to you is because your obedience is known to all. They know that you're an obedient church. So what do you expect? If you've got an obedient Bible study, you've got an obedient Sunday school class, you've got an obedient small group, you've got an obedient church, what do you expect the devil to do? He's not going to waste his time on somebody who's disobedient. He's already got them. He's after you. So he says, of course you're drawing this fire. You're the one with the football. So the devil's going to come after you. It's his strategy. <coughs> I was talking to someone the other day about some sort of uh, missional, pastoral strategy. I don't even remember what it was. And I remember saying to them, though, you know, I don't think we have any human beings who are so cynical as that they would want to upset the apple cart. But I know the devil, and he will for sure want to upset the apple cart. So you're always, you're not just thinking about human beings. You're thinking about the devil and his schemes. And you're staying ahead of him. And you're thinking about what he might do. And he will do it. And then notice verse 20, uh, Roman numeral number 2. Trust in the Lord. He says, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Who's behind all this? Satan. What's Christ going to do? Crush Satan's head. This goes back to Genesis 3.15. The proto-evangel. The very first promise given in the Garden of Eden. Before they were dismissed from the garden. What is Eve told? There'll be enmity between you and the serpent. Your seed will crush his head and he will bruise the heel of your seed. Who's the seed? It's the Lord Jesus Christ. So the big story in all the Bible is Genesis 3.15. When you read Genesis 3.15, the rest of the Bible is about how that all gets worked out. And Paul is saying, don't forget Genesis 3.15. Don't forget who you are. You're in the seed. You're in Christ, and he's going to crush the one who's playing all these devious games against you. He's going to take the bullies of the playground and put them down finally, and he's going to lift you up. Don't forget it. So you stay in this battle, and you remember how this all works out in the end. And then he says, not only the future victory of God is guaranteed, but what about the present grace of Christ? He says, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Grace is with you now. What does grace do? Grace warms your heart. Grace causes you to fall in love with Him because He's been gracious to you. 
Grace enables you to love other people. Grace enables you to stand up and contend for the gospel even when it means your unpopularity. That's what grace does for you. And you have the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ right now. And he says to the Romans, you don't have to have me. What you have to have is Christ and his grace and you've got it. In the future he will crush the evil one and in the present he will strengthen you for this battle. And then in Roman numeral number three, lastly, you'll notice in these last three verses, we unite with our brothers. So look at the strategy here. Having been given this precious gospel, we've got to watch out. We oppose schismatics, we trust in the Lord, and we unite with our brothers. Now we saw from last time, last week, that Paul had many acquaintances. He was very aware of the breadth of the church, and so he is here. And he starts with Timothy, my fellow worker greets you. Paul had ministry friends of all types. He didn't try to do this on his own. He was always building a team. You've got to build a team. If you're doing something important, you need a team. What kind of people did Paul have? First of all, he had colleagues like Timothy. But he also had protégés like Timothy. His protégés became his colleagues. And you'll notice that wherever Paul went, he always traveled, almost always, with colleagues. Now, he's in Corinth when he writes this. Actually, we know he went to Corinth by himself because he, he was escaping the troubles in Macedonia. So he was in Athens by himself, and then he got kicked out to Corinth by himself, which is amazing. But normally, you, when you see Paul traveling, he's always with colleagues. You should always be working with colleagues. He has administrative helpers. Uh, and you see this in the list. He has hosts, people like Gaius, who was a host to me and to the whole church. He has people who open their homes. Administrative helpers like Tertius, who was the secretary who wrote down the letter that Paul dictated. Those with influence, like Erastus, the city treasurer in Corinth. Corinth is a huge city, 400,000, 500,000 people. It was like a Memphis. He had the city treasurer who got converted and was in his church. A plant there. And he used him you know, for leadership. And then he had those with no influence, we, you know, like Quartus and other people. He had a church full of slaves. So he was bringing people of all different backgrounds together and he was allowing each of them to use their spiritual gifts on the team. This is how we contend for the gospel. This is how we watch out for the good deposit that's been given to us. We'll take your football, gentlemen. Be aware of the 10-year-olds around you today. Hang on to that football and run like crazy. Let's pray. <laughs> Father, thank you for giving us such a gracious gift and for giving us the equipment to defend what you've, been give, what you've given us. And we pray today that we will be wise men who know the difference between good and evil and who know when to stand up and contend for the gospel. Make us faithful proclaimers and defenders of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Make us, Lord, those who are very watchful about those who seek to divide and give us wise methodology for encountering those divisive people when they come. We pray that many of them will come to know you and those who refuse to do so will be ushered out of the presence of other sheep who could be led astray. So help us, Lord, to be faithful to this gospel that you've given us now until we see you face to face. We make our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.